This is The Nexus, and I am Art Swift. On the show, we have Sherrod Brown, the senior senator from Ohio, who is now serving his third term. The Democrat and ranking member of the Banking Committee just published a new book about eight senators who sat in the same desk as he did in the Senate chamber. We'll explore what he learned by writing about these exceptional men, and I'll offer my analysis of what I learned reading this compelling work. And now, The Nexus. Sherrod Brown is the senior U.S. Senator from Ohio, having served in the Senate since 2007. He has been in elected office in some capacity almost continuously since 1975. Senator Brown has dedicated his life in public service to fighting for what he calls the dignity of work, the belief that hard work should pay off for everyone. And now he has written a book titled Desk 88, Eight Progressive Senators Who Changed America. It is my pleasure to welcome you, Senator Brown, to the Nexus. Thank you, Mr. Swift. I appreciate being on. As the subtitle of the book says, there are eight progressive senators you have spotlighted and each chapter is a short biography of each, peppered with your thoughts on their political journeys and how their work ties in with issues you've encountered as a senator. How did you decide to write this book? Yeah, I thank you for asking that. First of all, I, I would say this book is about eight white male senators. Uh, that's what the Senate was when, um, in this time period from the 20s for about the next 70 years. And um, I would I would be almost certain that if somebody 50 years from now wrote about Desk 88, the desk I had on the Senate floor, they would there would be a number of women and people of color, and they would be it would be a more progressive Senate because almost by definition a diverse Senate's a, a better, more progressive Senate. Um, it started in, in in 2007. I came to the Senate. Much of the Senate is much of the early days um, in the Senate are are about uh, done through seniority. You choose your desk, you choose your office, you choose your committees, and so there were ten senators left in the freshman class that were going to sit in any of these ten desks, and I, I didn't really care where they all looked sort of the same, but so I. I've been. I'd heard that senators carved their names in names in desk drawers, so I pulled out a number of desk drawers, and then the one that I, the the fourth one I pulled out, I saw Hugo Black, Alabama, Al Gore, Senior, Tennessee, um, George McGovern, South Dakota, and then it just said Kennedy. So Ted Kennedy standing nearby I said, "Ted, come here a second, would you?" And he walked over. And I said, "Which brother's desk is this?" And he said, "Well, it's got to be Bobby's because I have Jack's desk." So I um, I just thought that's kind of cool, and he got first choice. So um, I just thought I would – I thought about – because I care about history. My wife had sent away for a bunch of um, – they had gotten from eBay a bunch of out-of-print books about the Senate, um, biographies and just books about the, the United States Senate, and I read a number of them. They were all 3 and $4 books because they were out-of-print, and nobody much was reading them. And I just got thought, maybe I ought to write about these senators – who have, um, in sort of a message of hope, and this book is about a message of hope. It's fundamentally about that I believe the power and the power of government to make people's lives better, and I I looked at it through that lens. And what was the? I mean, you you started it that many years ago. Did you 
do this in fits and starts? Did you write a little bit here and there? Yeah. Uh, did it all kind of culminate in the last year? How did it kind of go? Yeah, kind of all, all of the above. I, I, it's, I, you know, I have a day job. I'm in the sun, and I just didn't have a lot of time to do this. I started writing. I'd write on airplanes by hand sometimes. I'd, I'd um, sit at, a, at the table. My wife is a, is a writer, and she's now working, now just finishing her first novel, but wrote a couple other books. And I'd be sitting at a laptop while she was sometimes, and it was it was fits and starts. I didn't I didn't do it very well until about 2015, and uh, my wife looked at my first draft, and she thought she said this just I thought it was about ready, and she said not even close. Um, you've got to put more of yourself in there instead of just the eight biographies. You need to talk about from a perspective that a senator could do uniquely talk about these these issues and these these um, eight senators so i would use the um I, I i talked about civil rights in one essay i talked about worker rights in other essays i talked about the affordable care act so after each of the eight senators there is an essay sort of starting point with that senator expanding into issues of the day and and ideas of the day hmm. and so some of these senators we definitely know Robert Kennedy and George McGovernor certainly too. But there's a senator in here I confess I had never heard of, and that's Glenn Taylor. Can you tell us why you included this one-term senator from the state of Idaho? Yeah, and uh, I also admit that I didn't know who Glenn Taylor was when I saw it and saw his name, and so I, I didn't I didn't settle him right away. Um, there are two books one that I read. I mean, I, I, I over time I read about 160 books for this book. I said for this for Desk 88, and they're in the bibliography. I interviewed about 100 people, and um, the most the, the, I found two books that had any much of Glenn Taylor at all. One was his biography, his autobiography, and then one was a biography of him. Um, he was perhaps the most interesting, the most unorthodox, and the, and the most gutsy of the group. And I'll give you a couple examples. Um, in 1946, he, he first he ran for office seven times, the House once, the Senate six times. He won once. He his jobs through his life. He was a toupee maker. He was a um, sheet metal worker. He worked construction. He was a musician. He and his wife Dora had the Glenn Dora Singers. Their son A Rod Dora spelled backwards A Rod like the baseball player um, was I my 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 most fun conversation was I I tracked A-Rod down. Uh, Ten years ago, he was a 75-year-old dentist, retired dentist from California. And I talked to him about his dad, and he, he told me this story. He said, 1948, Glenn Taylor, how he's known to history is he was the running mate of Henry Wallace, the progressive candidate in 1948 that ran for president against Truman, Dewey, and Strom Thurmond. And Taylor um, didn't Wallace Taylor didn't get a lot of votes, but Taylor was in Alabama campaigning, and he went into an integrated audience, speak to an integrated audience, and he was arrested and roughed up by Bull Connor's uh, police department. He spent the night in the Birmingham jail, and so he, um, his son told me this, and I mean, that's, it's, history shows it's true, and, and he um, stood up. Idaho was a, was less than one percent African American, had a very a pretty non-existent labor movement. But he stood up on those issues, and he said, I, "I'm going to do things that may cost me my seat, but I'm going to do them." And it did. He did them, and it cost him a seat. So he he maybe is the most courageous of the group, and had a, had an impact because of that. Right, and didn't he only he as I said earlier he had one term and. 
Mm-hmm. Would you say it was because of his running in 1948 that he... Uh, lost or i mean you know i used to live in idaho for a, a brief time oh, okay I, i'm astonished that someone like this ever got elected to office and so that's what made this this chapter yeah. so poignant to me because I, I hate to say in 70 years it hasn't changed that much yeah. and so i'm just kind of curious how um how he fared after he left the senate well, he, that's when he jumped from job to job. I think he became a toupee ma- manufacturer after he left the sun, toupee maker, you know, sheet metal worker. Those jobs were, he just kind of needed to make a living. He kept running for the Senate. He ran in 54 and 56 after losing in 50. So from 1938 to 1956, he was on the ballot every two years, I think with the exception of twice. Um, so he liked running for office. Um, he might have, in some sense, made a living running for office, passing the hat and all that. I'm not sure it wasn't clear. I mean, he had other jobs, but he never, he just had a, he had an unusual life. But he, in 19, but I think he lost because he wasn't necessarily good in politics. I mean, he lost a lot. He lost because of the 1948 race when he ran as a progressive um, in a conservative state, as you point out. And I think he lost because of Joe McCarthy, too. I mean, they really went after him. Um, it was the it was the beginning of the McCarthy era, and they made they made people like Glenn Taylor an example. The the, the far right did, and they did the same thing to Claude Pepper in Florida in 1950, also running for reelection. That's right. Um, and so I I didn't get the sense that you thought that highly though of William Proxmire who served 31 years from the state of Wisconsin though you put him in the book anyway am yeah. i right about that yeah i i don't i'm not sure i wouldn't say i didn't think highly i i he was an eccentric he was the most eccentric taylor was maybe the most unusual and eccentric too but proxmire um spent, proxmire had the good fortune to run in the most democratic cycle years 58 64 70 76 82 all the years he ran for re-election were good years for democrats but he also um he never spent any money in his campaigns to speak of he 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 would say the only money he was spending was on stamps to mail back checks people had sent him. Um, he would campaign nonstop. I mean, he would not not just the last year of a six-year term. Um, Herb Cole, who succeeded him in the Senate in 88, Herb was at, at lunch one day on Easter Sunday. Herb is Jewish and doesn't celebrate Easter, obviously, and was having lunch at a, at a restaurant in a small town in Wisconsin. It's Easter Sunday, and Bill Proxmire walks in and just starts going table to table, shaking hands, saying happy Easter to people. Um, he, that's how he would be, you would find him outside the stadium in a Milwaukee um, Braves and then a Milwaukee Brewers baseball game, standing outside the stadium, shaking hands at 9.30 or 10 or 10.30 at night after the game was over. He just did that nonstop. And I just, I, I, I would not, I, I I like Proxmire in some ways. I would not have wanted to live the life he did. And he said, he sort of wistfully said that at the end, that he's not sure that he should have lived his life this way. But to him, it was all driven by politics and getting reelected. He did some pretty great things. He was chairman of the banking committee, which I would like to be a year from now if the Senate wins. If we Democrats win the Senate, I will be. Um, And he did a lot of sort of progressive things in banking. Um, But he was kind of like nobody. I don't think he had friends much in the Senate. He was kind of like nobody else. 
And the thing I thought was interesting, which I think a lot of people might actually enjoy having nowadays would be, especially in this internet era we live in, he gave out something called the Golden Fleece Awards. What were those? Yeah, he, um, it's what he was known for. And I, as a kid, I um, was in college um, half about halfway through Proxmire's time in the Senate. And around that time, he started, I don't remember what year, he started the Golden Fleece Awards. He he gave, he gave would do a news conference and give out a, um, a caricature of some kind of, 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 a, of a, I'm not sure what even the physical thing he handed out were, but anybody, any, he would give examples of money, of, of, a, of a government expenditure that was a waste of money. And sometimes it would be a military boondoggle, some, a really expensive piece of hardware that he was criticizing. Other times it would be scientific research that the NIH or CDC or National Science or some group was doing, some government agency was doing that he thought was kind of silly. But sometimes they weren't. And sometimes if you take out a context, um, some product or some research project, um, it doesn't sound like it makes sense to us, but it might lead to a scientific breakthrough if you're a chemist or a biologist or a researcher. Yeah. So they were they weren't entirely fair in other words, but they would get a lot of attention about wasteful spending. Exactly. No, I I, I understand that. Um one thing I really liked about this book, besides the continual witty writing, was the sense of political science you bring to it. You mentioned several patterns that have persisted in American political history and how we see the same cycles happening over and over again. If you identify the patterns, you know what you're going to get in any given political struggle. So, for example, you write about the innovators and conservators. Can you explain what that means? Yeah, that that is um, that to me is the 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 significance of the book and the, to to trace the pattern of the innovators' experiences. Emerson said that history is an ongoing battle between he used the term innovators and conservatives, progressives and conservatives, and conservatives want to hold on to their wealth and power and privilege and status. Progressives want to move the country forward on, uh, on you know whether it's Medicare or civil rights or voting rights or or safe drinking water laws. And so this battle goes on, and progressives progressives lose most of the time. But we, when we've won in the last hundred years, last say ninety years, we've won really big. We, we've won only twice, but when we win, we win really big. And when I mean win in terms of a, a real progressive era, in the '30s with Roosevelt, we got collective bargaining and minimum wage, and you know, and and, and um. Social Security in the 60s with Johnson, we got Medicare and Medicaid and voting rights and civil rights and the Equal Opportunity Act and the Higher Ed Act and immigration reform. And, and so even those progressives don't win often when we win. The, the victories are so big that they have they have long lasting effects that are really good for the country. But immediately, because progressives are winning, uh, the special interest groups immediately push back. Um, you can see it right now in tobacco, where we've seen tobacco use in this country drop by almost two-thirds in the last 50 years. Now the tobacco companies are fighting back. Um, they lose. They, the 1,300 people a day die from smoking-related illnesses. Tobacco companies have to find 1,300 new customers every day, and they're not going to me. I, I have grandkids. They're going to 15-year-olds and 16-year-olds and 12-year-olds to get them to smoke with e-cigarettes and jeweling 
gambling and all that. So, so it's, it, it, these battles always go on between interest groups and progressives. And uh, this book really points out that that's why that was really the purpose of the book was to point that out and show that that um, how important that struggle is and how important it is for progressives to win. And I highlighted those progressives because they all believed in the power of government to make lives better. And I, I mean, I found this so interesting that, and when I reflected on it, it was absolutely true. When you come down to a time perspective, Republicans or conservatives seem to be in power much, much longer than Democrats or progressives. Yet, when progressives are in power, they make a lot happen. And there will be some who say for the good and for the for the worse, you know, it depends on what part of the spectrum you're on. But but it's almost like just from a, a time space perspective, it's never been even close to even the amount of time each faction is in power. I find that so f interesting, you know? Yeah, and, and it's, I think it's true. And that's, I mean, that's why I said that progressives don't win most, of, progressives lose most of the time. But when we win, it has such dramatic impact. And, you know, it, I mean, I think there's no, unless you're a, a right-wing ideologue, there's no question that, that progressive victories have made lives better for this country. And again, you look at, um, public support overwhelmingly for Medicare, for Social Security, for safe drinking water laws, for Pell Grants, for um, for the government buying huge wilderness spaces to preserve, uh, to clean up of Lake Erie, which was so important in the 70s in, in my region of the country. So um, when progressives win, we do really good things. And that's why I, I, I don't exactly predict it here, but I do think there's a reasonably good chance that, that 2020 could launch a new progressive era in this country. Um, we, we almost had it with the Obama years, but it was cut so short by the 2010 elections uh, and that, that, that even the big victories like the Affordable Care Act and Dodd-Frank didn't have quite the impact they would have had um, if the Democrats had, had been able to, to win another election or two right after that. That's right. Um, and we'll get to that in a minute in terms of the future. But out of the eight, I know this might be uh, asking about like your favorite child or something, but <laughs> what, what do, do you have a favorite of the eight you wrote about? Well, I... I um, Taylor was, I'd say Taylor because he, just the same reaction you had. You didn't know who he was and you asked about him first. So Taylor to me was the most fun to learn about because I knew a little bit about, a little or a good bit about a number of them and just the challenge of getting information and talking to his son and all that. Um, I, Kennedy was my, my political, I'm heroes, never quite a word that people throw around a little bit maybe more than we should. Kennedy was the person I liked the most, and McGovern was my first big campaign I worked on as a, as a student, and McGovern was the only one of the eight I knew. So um, I, I, I would, I, mean, I didn't answer your question very well, but those are the, but, but you know, I, I have a connection to Al Gore Sr. through knowing his son. So um, I, and each, each was, each was fun, and I felt like I, I read enough books about most of them. Again, Taylor was harder, but that I, I felt like I knew a lot about them and I, I they were all I mean I guess the answer is they were all uneven um, you know Black started off as a KKK member and 30 years later was burned in effigy at his law school for for his decisions on integration um, and the segregationists that, that 
supported him in 1926, hated him by 1956. Um, Kennedy started off working for Joe McCarthy's committee, and then um, early as his brother's attorney general, wiretap Martin Luther King. But I love the last four years of Kennedy's life. Um, especially the last two and a half or three years of his life. So um, Gore was uneven on civil rights, voted, stopped, refused to sign the the, um, the manifesto, the Southern Manifesto, opposed to Brown v. Board of Education. Later voted, though, against the Civil Rights Act, but then voted for voting rights and lost his seat. But Gore was... I believe, and I want to ask his son this, I never did, Gore seemed willing to lose his seat in 1970 um, by because he knew being against the Vietnam War, the only Tennessee politician that was, uh, in Congress anyway, and, um, and took on Nixon's nominees, his racist nominees, Carswell and Hainsworth, for the Supreme Court, knowing that, that he could lose his election doing it, and he did the right thing. And that's really the lesson. Most of these senators... Push came to shove. They did the right thing. Not they didn't get there first, or they didn't get there all the right away. Sometimes, uh, Glenn Taylor did. Glenn Taylor was pretty courageous the whole time. And what I liked so much about the book is that even with some of the folks that I knew a good deal about, I, I still learned something. Where like Robert Kennedy, you know, has, has probably had five hundred books written about him at this right, point, right. but yet I still there was a part that you had that I thought was intriguing where you were saying that when he was campaigning in 1968, he was in Indiana and that um, he was talking about Indian reservations and the problems of the ghetto and the inner cities to Indianans who normally would not care about this, but yet he touched something in them. Yeah, and he did. And he, well, thank you. And that, that's what that's what people that, that admire Kennedy, that's what we love about him, that he challenged orthodoxy. He he fought for the least privilege in society. I mean, my, my view of Kennedy, I was born in 1952. So when Kennedy was assassinated, I was 15. Um, I was born in late 52. And Kennedy, um, I, I, you know, I, I, I didn't, I learned to like, I mean, I like Kennedy because of his empathy and, and his concern for people with less privilege than he, but there was one moment, and I, I, I wrestled a little bit whether I should write about Kennedy, because so many others had, and I wasn't going to be a Kennedy scholar. I wasn't going to have the, the research staff. I did all this on my own for 10 years. I mean, I, I had plenty of people I talked to, but I didn't have researchers. So I, I knew I could. I knew I did something different with Kennedy, and that kind of came about when um, my wife and I had dinner with Marion Wright and her husband, Peter Edelman. Marion Wright Edelman was the name she took when she married him. And, and they, she told me a story, and they kind of told it together because they were, they were, they, it's when they met. Um, she did not have, she's an African American woman, graduated Yale Law School, grew up in South Carolina. She didn't like the Kennedy family because John Kennedy had appointed really awful judges to the, to the court system, segregationist judges in the South, um, for political reasons that she didn't think were justifiable. Um, Eisenhower, on the other hand, picked better Republican judges in those days on civil rights than the Kennedy Democratic judges. So she didn't really have much use for the Kennedys. So Bobby, as a as a senator, was coming to Mississippi, and 
Um, she, Marion Wright Edelman, Marion Wright then was running the Head Start program for the state of Mississippi because the segregationist governor and senators wouldn't do it. So um, Kennedy wanted to see poverty in the Delta. So she said, "I know." She told me that night at dinner, Connie. Me, I had no, I had no use for him. Um, he shows up. He had this this young slick guy named Peter Edelman with him um, as his advanced guy and his staff guy. Um, she later married him, but she um, she said Kennedy. She didn't really want him to be there. She didn't want to be there, but Kennedy, she said, showed a, just an uncommon empathy. She said he went into this one shack where this really poor family lived um, that had a couple of sick babies, and Kennedy sent the media out of the out of the room, wouldn't let them into the shack and to these people's homes. And she said he picked up this baby. She said I wouldn't have picked him up. He had sores. He was so dirty. He looked sick. And she said, I just saw an empathy there that I'd never seen in a senator and rarely in a human being. And it changed her view. And to the point, as I said, too, she, she married his aide, Peter, sometime later. <laughs> and that's the, that's the Kennedy. That's the Kennedy I like and the Kennedy I, I know, known to history. But I, I wanted to give the book something different about sort of, I mean, I don't, I don't know why, Ted, why Bobby Kennedy changed. His brother's death certainly had a huge impact on him. But I think his doing things like that in Mississippi um, really took took him. There's a there's a there's a Lincoln story that um, his staff wanted him to stay in the White House and win the war and free the slaves and preserve the Union. And he said, "No, I got to go out and get my public opinion baths." Well, Bobby took better better and more frequent uh, public opinion baths than than almost any other senator, maybe than any other senator. <laughs> Great term, public opinion baths. Isn't that a good term? Yeah, it was Lincoln's term. We need to use that more often. But um, all right. I know you're not running for president, and I'm not going to ask you if you're going to pull a Bloomberg or Patrick and make a late entry into the race. How well, you can ask. Uh, the answer is no. And I, I, I maybe if I were worth worth billions of dollars, no, I, I, I'm not. I'm not. Period. Go ahead. However, by this point, there have got to be some candidates you lean toward. Who are they? Well, you know, I'm not going to tell you that, but sorry. I mean, I'll answer you as candidly as I can on every question. I don't, I, I'll say it this way. I do not know yet whom, for whom I'm going to vote. I want to see how these candidates play out um, and how they work under pressure and how they um, do they do they talk or they contrasting Democrats with Trump or are they fighting with each other too much, um, how they handle uh, these uh, several issues from health care to jobs issues to labor issues. I want them all to talk more about the dignity of work, about um, about workers, not just white male firefighters, but workers generally, people that pick up your trash, people that clean office buildings, people that are security guards, people that work in hospitals, people that work for minimum wage or work for tips. And I want to um, I want to see how uh, my colleagues in the Senate who are running and, and others address these issues and how the public reacts to them. And I still think it's early for that. I mean, you know how to win elections, though, especially in seemingly red states like Ohio. Do you have any kind of prognostication of what's going to happen in the primary? I mean, we looks like we have four candidates who could split everything at this point. Well, and I don't know that it's only going to be those four. Maybe two different ones. Two others. Two may drop out. I mean, drop out of the four leading. I don't mean drop out of the race. And two others may surge. So I, I just think it's too early to tell. I, I, um, I, I, my, my, my counseling to them, understanding politicians don't, um, 
politicians who give advice to other politicians usually are not well received. So I, I'm not in that business except when they ask. And I'm, I'm hopeful they talk more about the dignity of work and they really run a race sort of seen through the eyes of workers. I, I think I win Ohio because I, I mean, I, I, I don't, I don't compromise. I've had an F from the NRA my whole career. I've had a, um, I, I've, I've um, been pro-choice, 100% pro-choice. I'm a, supported marriage equality for over 20 years. So um, I, I, you, you can, but you can, you, you don't have to choose between talking to progressives and talking to workers. Um, you talk to all workers and you talk to them, even if they disagree with me on some social issues, I get some workers' votes, some people's votes, because I talk to them in their workplace and talk to them about about their health care, about their education, about their jobs. And that's what moves a lot of voters. And I think if Democrats do that well, and you contrast it with Trump's betrayal of workers and betrayal of consumers, um, we win if, you do, if we do that. I, I just want to ask one last thing. And sure. I brought up the phrase, and I, I mentioned in my intro, and I, I have just so taken to the phrase, the dignity of work. And you have a nice anecdote in the book about when you were a teenager i believe when you when you kind of became that person and you you understood for the first time the dignity of work could you mention that you know i'm trying to think what 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 i believe me more it was on your on your family farm okay you were um, you mentioned in the yeah. book about how you were milking cows in a at a time in a summer, and you were working insane hours for a certain amount of pay, and that is when it all. Yeah, I, I guess I understood the ethic of work then, and I I, I just yeah, I was I grew up in a I mean I, my my dad was a doctor I had privilege I um, worked on a family farm um, outside of town where we grew up I worked there every summer um, and I milked cows and I baled hay and I and I, I worked hard and I think I learned I learned the 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 ethic of work and the, the how hard people's lives could be. I, I always knew I would not be milking cows 10 years, 20 years, 30 years after that, um, unless I decided that was the kind of job I, I wanted to do. Um, I, I understood unlike my wife who grew up in a working class family, she didn't understand she was until she was in her twenties that you could actually have a job you liked, not just a job you had to do to put bread on the table. And I, I guess I was taught that with parents. My mom plays very prominently in this book, especially the first essay about her growing up in a small Georgia town. And I, um, you know, she taught me about civil rights and my parents taught me about work and I had a lot of advantages in life and it, those lessons sort of took me through. Well, the book is Desk 88, Eight Progressive Senators Who Changed America, and the author is Sherrod Brown. Senator, thank you for joining me in the next Thanks. Episode. It was an honor, Mr. Swift. Very good questions. Thank you. And we will be right back. Sherrod Brown is impressive, isn't he? You can see why people were urging him to run for president and why he was the first runner-up to be Hillary Clinton's vice presidential choice in 2016. Word on the street was that Clinton wanted Brown, but because the governor of Ohio was a Republican and Hillary was so sure she was going to win, there was legitimate fear that Brown would become VP and a Republican would take his seat. Not so the case with boring and benign Tim Kaine where there was a Democratic governor of Virginia. Could Sherrod Brown have tipped the election for Hillary? I'm pretty sure he could have. Ohio would have been very much in play, 
and the rest of the industrial Midwest would have been attended to in a way that wasn't with Clinton Kane. Alas, what could have been. Still, as Senator Brown said, he is very much invested in his Senate job, and as the ranking member of the Banking Committee, he is poised to take over as chairman in a year's time should the Democrats retake the Senate. While I have been long following and admiring his career, I am thankful that he wrote Desk 88 mainly because of the patterns I referenced in our interview. A lot of the push and pull between the parties that we say is unprecedented and unbelievable has often happened before. In fact, everything seems to come down to whether you believe the government should be helping people or you don't. Should the government do something about slavery? Or should people be left alone to do what they want? Should the government bail out the banks and the people depositing in them? Or just let the people fend for themselves? Should the government provide unemployment insurance if you lose your job? Or should you rely on charity and family and hope for the best? Lots of choices throughout our American history. Sometimes we rose to the occasion. Other times we didn't. But the patterns never go away. They always come back. I also found it interesting in Desk 88 that with the exception of a couple of the senators Brown profiled, that these men were ridiculously wealthy, yet had a keen understanding of the poor and middle class in the United States. And while they were all white, they often saw something members of their class didn't see, that African Americans were equal citizens and deserved to vote, buy houses, and begin to build generational wealth. Where did this come from in Robert Kennedy, for example? Of all people, he didn't need to champion the cause of American Indians or the inner city black person, but yet he had a preternatural decency, rare for an upper crust politician, that allowed him to see the world through others' eyes. Herbert Lehman, the scion of banking, You'll remember the bank he founded, Lehman Brothers, as being a casualty of the financial crisis of 2008, had a fervent devotion to civil rights, happening years and years before the Civil Rights Act became law in the 1960s. He was a massive proponent of child labor laws. It's almost impossible to think now that businesses had seven-year-olds working for them, but despicably, they did. Lehman championed aggressive child labor laws that stated people under 16 could no longer be involved in businesses engaged in interstate commerce. We take that for granted today, but 80 years ago, powerful forces were aligned to exploit little children for the sake of capitalism. People like Lehman and President Roosevelt said there had to be a better way, and there was. Of course, Across much of the developing world, in places like Pakistan and Afghanistan, child labor goes unchecked. This world has a long way to go. I like Desk 88. I also like the dry humor and the subtle but consistent baseball references. I suggest you check it out to not only read about some extraordinary people, but also to figure out who we are as a political people. And that's our show. The Nexus is recorded in Washington and produced by Colin Martin. Research assistance by Ian Heald. If you enjoyed this podcast, please share it far and wide. Leave a ranking too. Thank you for listening and be well. Thank you.